And Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we just pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll just touch us, open our hearts and minds to the truths of your word and how your word can transform us from the inside out. Lord, may we be open and willing vessels, Lord, into which you can pour this incredible grace. We are but jars of clay, but Lord, we have within us, Lord, this incredible gift. Lord, you've deposited within us yourself, Lord. You've not sent an angel. You've not sent a holy man, Lord. You've said, I will dwell in you and you in me. And today, as we come in your name, may our hearts be awakened to the truths of your word. Bless the children, Lord, in their time. Grant them, Lord, a real sense of your presence as their hearts are touched as well, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. And I'd like us to turn to the word of the Lord, can we? And this morning, the passage I wanted to draw your attention to is found in Matthew's Gospel, reading from chapter 16 and verse 13. Over these series of Sundays, certainly when I speak, we're looking at the whole theme of the cross of Christ. Now, I'm very much aware of the fact that to speak on such themes very much feels like standing on holy ground. Because there's so much to learn and to grow into. You know, all we can do really is look through a glass dimly, don't we? You know, because the immeasurable, unsearchable riches of Christ... The Bible says what are going to be disclosed as we step into eternity. Paul says that in the ages to come, we will learn more about the unsearchable riches of Christ. So when you get to heaven, you're not going to be sat on a cloud with a harp. You're actually going to be growing and learning and entering into far more of all that God has right into the corridors of eternity. And that's something that awaits us all. For those of us who know the Lord here today, then that uh, is a hope that we have and a hope that God has sealed by his Holy Spirit in our hearts. But let us read the word of the Lord, can we? Because today I want us to look at the whole theme of the cross in the Gospels. Now, last time we looked at the cross very much in type and shadow under the Old Testament, in the law and in the Psalms and in the prophets, but... Today I want us to go to where the word of the Lord is concerning the life and ministry of Christ whilst he was here on earth. And this is what Matthew records in verse 13 of chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples 
to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, as we just look at this passage of scripture here today, we find Jesus with his disciples in Gentile territory, in the northern part of what is now the Holy Land. And he turns to them and he asked them a question that was divided into two sections. The first part was very much, what do people say I am? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples obviously say, well, maybe they see you as one of the prophets, maybe a resurrected prophet or another Jeremiah or maybe John the Baptist or someone else. But then he turns to them. And this is the question that every single heart is challenged with here today. Jesus is not asking you, well, what does people think about me? He's not asking for a general answer. He's saying, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? A direct question. And then Peter, seen as very much the spokesperson of the group, says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then goes on to talk about the fact that Upon the revelation of Christ, would the church be built? Jesus says, look, you are Peter, Petros. But on this rock, Petra, Petra is big mountain, Petros, little pebble. So the church was not built upon Peter. It is a revelation that is built upon the truth of who Jesus is. And then obviously the conversation continues. But then... It's interesting how Jesus charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you would have thought, well, once the message is known, surely it has to be broadcast. But actually, this is known within theological circles as the messianic secret. Because there were times when Jesus said, don't tell anyone. For the simple reason that had they done so, then the message would have been either misunderstood or people would not have been able to grasp the full implication of that or maybe more importantly it was to do with the timing more than anything of when that message would be heard because you come to Acts 2 with the preaching of the gospel the day of Pentecost and suddenly the message is spread abroad isn't it from Jerusalem to Rome the fact that Jesus is the Christ becomes the heartbeat message for the early church as they would proclaim and make known the truths of God's word but then it says from that time on Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things so there's a defining turning point isn't there here Once the message had been received by Peter and, yes, the disciples, as that message was planted in the heart of the apostles, suddenly everything starts to change. So as we look 
at the Gospels here in the New Testament. Let's say a few words by way of introduction here today. Because as we look at the Gospels, the question needs to be asked is, what kind of literature are the Gospels? Now, some would say, well, is it an autobiography? No, the answer is clear that the Gospels are not an autobiography. The Gospels aren't even a biography, strangely enough. The style of literature of the Gospels is known as historiography. Now that is an interesting word because it simply means something that is written down for the express purpose of declaring a central truth. So everything revolves around a central truth. So with the Gospels, what is the central truth? Well, it is Jesus, isn't it? It is the coming of the word that was made flesh. But even within that, the Gospels are not an exhaustive account of the life and ministry of Jesus. There's whole chunks of his life, even from when he was dedicated in the temple to his baptism. There's whole sections of his upbringing that are not mentioned. We have no detail as to what happened. But as we look at the Gospels, on the other hand... The major emphasis in terms of the amount of space given in terms of the life of Christ was his death and resurrection. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, a third of Matthew from 21 through to 28 is all about the death and resurrection. The same is true of Mark from chapter 11 through to 16. A quarter of Luke from 19 to 25, and nearly half of John's gospel is given over to the death and resurrection of Jesus, or certainly that Passion Week leading up to the cross. So each of the gospels actually focuses our attention on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And even within that, there is also a specific emphasis from each gospel writer. Matthew, for example, presents Jesus as the king. That's why he's writing more to a Jewish community rather than a Gentile community and presents Jesus as the lion. Mark, on the other hand, presents Jesus as the servant of God, the ox. So Mark's emphasis is more on what Jesus did than what he said. Luke, on the other hand, the son of man in his humanity. John then, as the final gospel writer, reveals Jesus as the divine son of God. So we have the lion, the ox, the man and the eagle. These are the different expressions that we find even in the book of Revelation of the glory of Christ himself. But what we have here is the ministry of Christ revealed But what is at the heart of that is that Jesus knew that he had come to fulfil a specific role and purpose. Which was to die and then to be raised. That's what Jesus says here. This is what Matthew records. That Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He set his face as flint towards that city. His whole life was mapped out in the sense of he came to give his life as a ransom for many. But then we look further into this and we look at his ministry, which is seen as divided up into three 
sections, as it were, three different years, each flowing one to the other. The first was the year of inauguration when he began. He was baptised, he went out preaching and healing the sick and delivering people from demons. And then there was the year of popularity where he feeds the 5,000. And they want to make him king, don't they? But he resists the temptation of the crowd. And then finally, there is the year of opposition that would ultimately lead to his death and resurrection. Matthew 16 is the tipping point between the year of popularity and the year of opposition. In the year of popularity, Jesus' ministry is primarily to the crowd, to the masses. But when he moves from popularity to opposition, the focus changes from preaching to the masses to preaching exclusively, or the focus is more on the disciples and them being trained. So the emphasis changes quite interestingly that in Jesus' final year, his primary focus, yes, he's ministering to folk, yes, he's healing the sick, he is raising the dead and all of this and more. But actually his teaching is specifically towards the disciples. So therefore, let's, in a way that I hope is going to be helpful today, look further into the death of Christ and his resurrection in the Gospels. There's so much in this, so I'm going to have to be disciplined around ensuring that we stick to the time. But as we look into this in a far more fuller way, there's so much that we can learn. I want to say five things here today just to give us an insight into what I believe is central to our understanding of the death of Christ in the Gospels. Number one, the rejection of this Messiah was foretold. Now we heard earlier on in the service of Isaiah 53, which gives us a greater insight into the horror of the cross than what we have in the New Testament. But Isaiah talked about it. But also we're told in Revelation 13 and verse 8 that all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, yes, All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Yes. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. When did the cross begin? It says here the Lamb was slain even before the creation of the world. So redemption comes before creation. In the mystery of God's eternal plan and foreknowledge... The cross was always at the heart of everything that God was going to do. The cross was not an afterthought. Some people teach, well, when Jesus came, that actually his original purpose was to establish the kingdom at that point. But because he was rejected, he had to revert to plan B. Obviously, he was rejected and crucified, so God had to come up with another plan. Dispensationalism often teaches this in an extreme form. But actually, I don't see that at all. That actually, from Genesis through to Revelation, the cross is at the heart of everything. Everything that God said and everything that God did was towards an ultimate purpose. So we need to understand this. Genesis 3 and 15 which is what is known as the first gospel mentioned, the proto-evangelion, the beginning where it talks about the fact that the 
head of the serpent, that seed, would be crushed. That the triumph of the cross would be seen. So the first thing is, is that the rejection of the Messiah was foretold. Jesus was not only changing history, but he was also fulfilling prophecy. And those two things always come together as you understand something of the life and ministry of the Lord. Number two, the rejection of the Messiah was central to God's plan of salvation. He was, as the Bible says, the stone that the builders rejected. On the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, onwards it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what is Peter saying? He's saying, well, even though you acted with treachery and deceit, even though this generation acted in blindness and hardness of heart, everything that happened. Yes, men are culpable and responsible, but actually God has a bigger picture. You did this, but actually everything that happened was according to God's perfect will. And this is the mystery, isn't it, of how God very often works. We look at things from one perspective and we see chaos. God sees it from a different perspective. It's a bit like if you take a tapestry. You look at it from one side. You look at the tapestry from the back. And what do you get? All loose pieces of string and thread. and You can't make head or tail of what the tapestry looks like. It's just a jumble of knots, isn't it? And thread. You turn it around and you see the picture. And that's very often how God works. It's all to do with perspective. And I think we need to understand here today that even though life may not be as easy as it should be, even though circumstances can come against us and they will, even though life doesn't bring about very often what we expect and there are troubles and triumphs, at the end of the day, God is working, isn't he? So through the cross... According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who was in charge ultimately? God. Who was the recipient of this blessing? Man. But Peter is saying here that it is according to God's ultimate plan of salvation. This is something that is at the heart of what we need to understand And appreciate for our own lives. Which means trusting in the sovereign grace of God is at the heart of what we need to see. And we need that for our own lives. It's not fatalism. We're not stepping back and thinking, well, God's going to do it all and all we have to do is wait. There is a part that we play. 
Because Peter then, later on in this wonderful sermon, talks about the fact that in view of all that God has done, in view of all that has happened, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. And the crowd who were gathered there, over 120, it moved up to thousands. They said, how can we be saved? There was an altar call on the day of Pentecost, but it didn't come from the pulpit, it came from the people. They said, how can we be saved? And Peter says, you've got to repent and turn to God. So that your sins might be wiped out. The times of refreshing might come from the Lord and that he might send the Christ. God's sovereign grace and man's free will, a mystery, yes we know, work together in the outworking of God's plan and purpose. So the rejection of the Messiah was central to God's plan of salvation. Jesus said it, that he would be rejected by that generation, by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, that he would be killed. But then, on the third day, he would be raised. Hallelujah. Let's move on. The third point I wanted to make here today is that the rejection of the Messiah was consistent with how Israel had treated the prophets throughout their checkered history. Let me read a passage found in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 23 and verse 30. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Then Jesus says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you all, these things will come upon this generation. So Jesus comes as the word made flesh, doesn't he? Hebrews 1 talks about this. God in these last days has spoken to us by his son. Under the old covenant, it was through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So there's a whole list of prophets, aren't there? The God sent What did Israel do to them? Rejected them. Didn't listen to them. Despised them. There wasn't a prophet that God didn't send that Israel didn't reject. So even on the basis of that, what happened to the former prophets under the Old Testament, if that's how Israel responded to the prophetic word, then surely Jesus is not going to get off any lighter. In fact, if anything, the parable of the owner of the vineyard who sent his son because there was rebelliousness within the vineyard, what did they do? They killed him. The owner had sent servants who were killed. And the owner thought, well, if I send my son, then surely they're going to listen to him. But they did to the son what they did to the servants. What they did to Jesus is what they did to the prophets. So Jesus is saying, look, The pinnacle of Israel's rebelliousness against God. This is, in a nutshell, what Jesus is saying. 
The pinnacle of Israel's refusal to heed and to hear the word of God will be seen in their ultimate rejection of the Son of God. You would have thought that the one who had created all things, who would then redeem all things, would be received. But John said he came to his own and his own received him not. One of the most tragic verses in the Bible. He came to those that he had created, but they rejected him. And Jesus is saying here, make up what is lacking. The fullness of Israel's rebelliousness against God would be seen in the fact that they would reject the one that God had sent. Not another prophet like a Jeremiah, Isaiah, or maybe one of the twelve from Hosea through to Malachi. But God's son. Such was the hardness of Israel's heart. But there is a mystery in this because as we've read from Acts 2, that even in the hardness of Israel's heart, God's perfect and definite plan was being accomplished. Because it wasn't simply about saving Israel, it was about saving the world. And Paul talks about this in Romans 9 through 11, where it says that Israel's hardening is for a purpose. Because they, as part of the true olive tree, broken branches through unbelief has been removed so that you might be engrafted in as a wild olive shoot. In other words, salvation has come upon the world because of Israel's unbelief. Because he was despised and rejected, the cross became a truth that would not only touch the lives of his people, Israel, but also the world. But that doesn't mean to say that God has cast off the Jew. Paul says, far be it. Has their sin meant that they have been rejected? Absolutely not. Their sin is only partial. It's not total. It's only limited, not eternal. And Paul talks about this in Romans 9 through 11, that the sin, the unbelief, of Israel has served to open the door for salvation to come to the Gentiles. And then Paul says something marvellous. He says, if by that unbelief this gift of salvation has come to the world and blessed the world, then how much more will the world be blessed when they are brought back in? But life from the dead. So God's in charge, isn't he, this morning? This is what we understand. That God is sovereign in all things. And we need to see this because whatever you're going through, let's bring it back to where we are here today. We've looked at the macro vision of this. What about the micro vision of this? It all means that God knows what he's doing. Even today. God's not out of control. God hasn't forgotten the plan. God is not scratching his head for ideas on how to solve the problems that we all face. God is sovereign in all things. So Jesus said, look, your rejection is consistent. Make up therefore. Let this cup of your own unbelief be filled and overflow. Because the judgment of God will come upon this generation. And that is the true horror, as it were, 
And the very nature of the cross itself, that Jesus took upon himself, yes, the sins of the whole world. But what took place on that cross, in terms of the horror of the cross and the significance of the cross, the pain and the suffering, I believe was such that what Jesus suffered on the cross was far greater than the sum total of all human suffering from that day until this. Old Testament, New Testament. What Jesus went through on the cross was far greater. So no one can say, well God, if you love people, why do you allow them to suffer? If you love us, why do you permit such things to come across? Why do you allow, you don't understand how we feel when in fact the Bible says he does. And that on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world. And what he suffered was far greater than the sum total of all human suffering throughout every age and generation. So God knows. He understands. He has stepped into time and he has stepped into your shoes. And he knows what it feels to be like you. Hallelujah. Let's move on. Fourthly. The rejection of Christ reveals the true nature of mankind's rebellion against God. As I've said, and John 3.16 talks about this. For God so loved the world, that whoever shall believe upon him, the one who is sent, shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. So had mankind not rebelled, then why would be there any need for a saviour? Had there not been that rebellion and rejection of the Lord, not only from Israel but also from the world, why would God need to send a Messiah for the world if the world was innocent? Well, Paul says in Romans, he says, the Jews guilty and the Gentile is guilty because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But since all have sinned, therefore all then are made the recipients of grace. All are guilty. But God has handed everyone over to guilt so that he might have grace on everyone. This is a lesson that we need to see. And this is what comes out through the Gospels. Yes, it was to Israel that Christ would come. To the lost house of his people. But it would be to the world that his gift would be given. And that's a truth that we need to understand, isn't it? What is mission? It's about declaring the message. God's mission. And that's what we're involved in. That's what the church is. It's central to God's plan, isn't it? The church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when Jesus says, I will build my church, he says, look, it's my project, my idea, my plan. I, his intention is that he will. And his project is that he will build. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who is building the church today? God. It's not any earthly denomination. We're part of that process. It's not the Pope. It's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's not some religious leader. 
It's not local church leaders, elders, pastors, call them what you will. It is Jesus building his church. And I'm glad it's that way because he will never ever get it wrong. We might and we would. But actually Jesus is building his church. I will build. How many of you know here today that everything that Jesus says he will do, he will do. And he makes no mistakes. So when he says, I will build my church, he's not talking about a man-made building or a cathedral or some kind of property that we all meet in. He's building living stones. Who is that? It's you. It's me. He's building a new temple made out of living stones that form part of a habitation that he dwells in by his Holy Spirit. And there's so much more that we can say about that. But let's move on. What does the gospel preach and teach us about another aspect of the death and resurrection of Christ? This is an important passage. In John 10, it talks about the fact that Christ died by his own authority and will. Where in verse 17 of chapter 10 of John's gospel it says... For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus prayed, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So who ultimately made that decision? Okay, men rejected Christ. The scribes, the Pharisees plotted against him. They wanted to get rid of him. They were jealous. The Gentile agencies of God's will, the Romans were part of that plan. But ultimately, who was it who made that decision that there would be a cross and an empty tomb? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He says, no one takes my life from me. That's why the death and resurrection of Christ is not seen as a murder or a martyrdom. It is seen as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Jesus gave himself to the will of the Father. He laid his own life down. He surrendered himself to the plan of God. He willingly gave up all his rights and privileges and he submitted himself to God's eternal will. That's a powerful truth. And in Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, I'll just read a passage where it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That was a great Bible study on the road to Emmaus, wasn't it? On Resurrection Sunday. But what did it say? It says, well, the Bible, the law, the Psalms and the prophets all spoke about the truth of who the Messiah would be and what he would accomplish. So therefore, let's try and draw all of this to some kind of conclusion here this morning. What is the teaching? What is the overall message that we get from the Gospels concerning the death and the resurrection of Christ? Well... First of all, there is a Godward emphasis and then there is a manward emphasis. 
Let's talk about the glory of God. John 17 and verse 4 is this is what Jesus prayed and declared. Where it said to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now this is before the cross. But Jesus is praying and this prayer was recorded and John includes it in his narrative. But Jesus is saying, I glorified the father by accomplishing everything that he sent me to do. And bringing it to a glorious finale. So, the teaching that we receive is that ultimately, God is glorified through the Son. The death and the resurrection of Christ represent the pinnacle of God being glorified. Now that is a mystery. How can God be glorified through such a horrific event? A broken event? Such pain, agony and suffering. How can God be glorified? He is glorified because his word has come to pass. He is glorified because his word has been proven to be true. He is glorified because he has a plan and that purpose will come to plan. And it will come to fruition. He is glorified because of the revelation of the perfect obedience of his son. I brought glory to you, O God, because I accomplished the thing that you sent me to do. His perfect obedience. So it's the glory of God is seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then secondly, and this is where we bring it down to the level at which God has placed us and it's manward. Where in Luke's gospel chapter 9 and verse 23... Jesus said this, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You have to remember that this command was given before Jesus had gone to the cross. This message was proclaimed to the disciples before Calvary had ever taken place. So for the disciples, they would have thought, what's this message of the cross the cross was a Roman form not only of persecution crucifixion was the most horrific means of death devised by man but Jesus is saying look if you're going to be a follower of me it's not simply paying lip service to what I say or going through some religious act or through religious motions. He says, if you want to come after me, you've got to first of all deny yourself. Number one, you've then got to take up your cross daily. Number two, and thirdly, you've got to follow me. If we're not willing to do points number one and points number two, we will never be able to accomplish point number three. The following of Christ comes after we deny ourselves and we take up our cross. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean? It means, as Christ did, we also do. Albeit in a different form, we're not called to be crucified as he was crucified. But what we are called to do is to walk in obedience. The surrendered life. That is the calling that God gives every single one of us. 
To follow the Lord means that we first of all have to put ourselves to one side. We have to take up our cross and we have to follow him. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not a load of regulations. It's not a load of do's and don'ts. The essence of Christianity is a call to be a follower of Jesus. Not a church attendee, although that would include it. Not to be some religious person, although the Bible does talk about pure religion in James. But actually, to be a Christian means that you are first and foremost a follower of Jesus. Let's strip it all back. We've had 2,000 and a half years of all sorts of churchianity issues where we've got all this debris and rubble. People haven't got a clue as to what church is. They think it's a building or a meeting or this ceremony or this religious duty. But actually to be a Christian means that you are a follower of Jesus. And if we get that right, then everything else fits into place. Yes, thank God for nice buildings. Thank God for sort of meetings and organisation and all of that and more. But unless Jesus is at the heart of what we do and the motive behind what we do, then we miss God's plan so the teaching of the cross in the gospels in its most simplest form is all about the fact that God is glorified through it all God is glorified God will be glorified in history and through everything through the pain and the suffering through the battles and the triumph through everything that happens God in his ultimate plan is that he is to be glorified. Amen? Amen. It's a mystery. But that's what it is. That's the plan. That's the message. That is what God is working towards. But then, we are called to be followers of Jesus. That's what the Gospels proclaim. And it's only through his death and resurrection that we are empowered to be the people that can fulfill that call. And next time we're going to be looking at the epistles and the book of Acts and look at how all of this works out, certainly in the writings of Paul especially, and what it means to be crucified with Christ. So let's pray together, shall we? And then we're going to come before the Lord and just spend a few times waiting upon him. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you, Lord, because you are faithful to your word and that in all things we just pray that you will just sow this word into our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.